Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Iman Wire podcast. Salim here. It's been a while since our last episode and uh, a lot of things have happened since then. There was COVID, then there was Ramadan, and most recently with the continued assault and murder of black lives in America, uh, there's been an increased attention on the topic of racism. This is a subject that's really been important to Iman Wire. On its written platform, for example, there was a series of conversations we had on race with Imam Bilal Ansari in 2015, and other articles as well. And so when this podcast started in 2016, it was important for that conversation to continue in this format. So for some of our newer listeners who are joining us today, before starting the current episode, we'd like to share some previous episodes that might add some value and texture to the conversations about race in the Muslim community that are worth revisiting. Starting with one of our very first episodes, uh, episode five, What is Muslim Cool?, that was with Dr. Suad Abdul Kabir, and Dr. Suad shared her insights on this rich culture described in her book, Muslim Cool, Race, Religion, and Hip-Hop in the United States, a culture rooted in embracing blackness and social justice, and on the importance of knowledge of the self. And she also discussed in this episode the ways anti-blackness works and perpetuates itself in the Muslim community. What I've seen is that oftentimes you have a couple things that happen in the Muslim community. So you have people who are in positions of whether they're like authority, so maybe they run an organization, or they're, or they're just, people love them, right, because of the, what they speak, what they teach, that kind of thing. And there's a way in which, but black Muslims are always missing from these kinds of things. So like, so for example, you know, I don't know, CNN does something, right, they call up some people, there are no black Muslims around, right? Or, or if you have a black Muslim, it's one person in particular. And then so there, and why does that matter? Because then there are people who have perspectives and expertise that are missing. Like one of the things, and this is kind of a little bit of- But, but sorry, field. do you feel that yeah. that is done on purpose? I feel that that is done because it's learned behavior. That's mm. what I think. So I think that we have learned, I think Muslim communities have, have learned when it's appropriate for black people to be around. This is what I think, for, in, in a mass sense, right? So what I mean is then is that, so people will invoke, for example, enslaved African Muslims to make claims about how they belong in the U.S. or how old Islam is to the U.S., right? Yet, in their own social circles and who they elevate, there are no black people, right? So, so it's like, okay, so as a history, we'll, we'll use them, right? Or people will talk about um, particular issues, right? And but when it comes to asking someone to sort of you know speak on that issue to bring them, they don't bring sort of black Muslims into the space. And I think it's because they learn this behavior. I mean, this is how anti-blackness works, right? It's not because people are consciously like, I hate black people. Like, like that's that really doesn't happen um, um, in a lot of Muslim communities. I don't think we just hate black people. Like, I don't think that happens. But they learn how to value blackness, right? So you learn, well, blackness is cool if you want somebody to sing you a song. Right. Blackness may not be so cool if you want somebody to represent you um, at the White House, for example. You know what I'm saying? So it's kind of like people learn that these kind of how to value it. And then it, it, it reproduces itself in the way we work in our communities. Sheikh Hassan Alachab in episode 27 called Suburban Islam brought attention to the moral and spiritual failure of economically privileged immigrant Muslim communities in addressing racial and class issues, contravening prophetic values in favor of aligning themselves with wealth and power at the expense of the soul. When we talk about, you know, suburban Islam, 
we talk about this vessel of suburbanism that, that all of these ideas all of these ideas that that inform suburbanism in america are becoming the host of islam and there is no way whether we are aware of it or unaware of it we are going to be affected by those ideals the ideals that inform this islam so we consider success as Muslims as when we have our houses. We have our house. We, we, we adopted the American dream. We adopted the idea without questioning what is it that is behind, what is the ideals behind it? What are the principles behind it that motivate it and informs it or inform it? The, the, the success for a while, especially for, for the immigrant Muslims mainly, Muslims embody the suburban with all its, what it offers. Let me just put it that way, what, what offers. So look at our masajid. They are huge masajid. We replicate, which as much as we replicate the the, the church, um, we try as much as 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 we can to, you know, in, in the way we adopt the, the the white power, the way we we dealt with it, the way we never for very, as long as Muslim lived in this country, I'm talking about the suburban Muslims, they didn't have an impact on civil rights or afterwards or afterwards. We know, okay, so we didn't have a lot of numbers in at the time with the uh, a lot of immigrants in the in the time of the civil rights movement, but later on there were a lot of issues that are social, and you won't find Muslims even touching it. To give you one of the manifestations of analogy, and, and I stop here. One of the manifestations of suburban Islam, and that, that really shocked me, as you may recall, and you're close to the events. A few years back, there was this upheaval in in Baltimore, right? And there were street marches, and there were protests, and some of them were violent because we are so remote from the suffering of those who suffer in the urban cities, our suburban reaction prompts one of the most and prominent um, uh, organization in America to, to issue a statement about the violence from the standpoint of the, the victor, the authority. It echoed the idea of the white America, the, 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 the fear of white America that African-American are are, are protesting and they are burning the tires and, and so on. For me, it was just like, look, look, look at us, we, you know, look at us. We, we adopted so much and we identify so much with the white power in America and we became a voice of it. Way back in episode nine, uh, we were honored to have Dr. Bilal Weir, who is the author of The Walking Quran. And he shared a history of Islam in Africa that hasn't been taught in our history books the vast intellectual tradition of African Muslim scholarship of the history of 18th century African Muslims who were pioneers in abolishing slavery and monarchy. Uh, to this day, this episode still remains my personal favorite. And as he says here, we can remedy ignorance with history. Never forget that it was the descendants of those same West Africans that were struggling against illegal enslavement uh, in West Africa, and that ended up in the holds of slave ships, and that nonetheless, because they had memorized and come to embody the Quran, that they were able to reproduce partial copies of the Quran from memory. Mm -hmm. They were able to teach the Quran in this in this country, and in Mexico, and in Brazil, and all throughout the New World, beginning in the 1500s and running right down to the end of slavery itself. They are the ones that established Islam in this place. And as long as immigrant Muslims refuse, stubbornly refuse to learn this history, then Islam will always be vulnerable to be dismissed as an external alien religion. And that's exactly what we see with the storm clouds that are gathering right now. But if we could overcome our own 
racial problems. If Muslims could recognize that, in, that we have this history of slavery in our countries of origin, you know, we have histories of race-based slavery in Egypt and in Saudi and other places, and therefore immigrant Muslims often arrive here with problems about race thinking, and then they come to America where those problems are only going to be multiplied. If we could um, have an honest conversation about how race is seen in our own community, and if we could remedy ignorance with history so that people could understand that, that African Americans, that African people, that the people that I've been talking about through this interview are the ones who are responsible for bringing Islam here, then Islam could no longer be so simply and easily dismissed as something foreign. Because in point of fact, Islam has been present in what would eventually become the United States of America before it became the United States of America. And that revolutionary, um, emancipatory thinkers from West Africa shaped the intellectual trajectory of the Atlantic world itself. If we could reclaim that history... And if we could speak with a single voice that this is our history, whether we're from Bangladesh or Malaysia or West Africa or Brooklyn, then maybe we would have enough unity of voice um, that we could be heard, if not from the corridors of power, because perhaps those people are deaf, dumb, and blind, but at least we could be heard by the broader society. Um, that would start to understand that Islam is something that's even more American than apple pie. For a more recent history in episode 18, called In the Footsteps of Hajj or Black Muslim Women Pioneers, Dr. Jamila Kareem was on the show and discussed her book, Women of the Nation, Between Black Protest and Sunni Islam, a book on the history of black Muslim women in their journey from the nation of Islam to the war with the Muhammad community. And in the episode, she discussed the importance of amplifying their voices and also reminded us of how the prophetic model requires us to unify our hearts. The, the prophetic statement that none of you truly believes that your, your faith is not complete until you love for your brother or your sister what you love for yourself. That statement is speaking to our hearts, right? And, and our character. And, and through our hearts and establishing this real love for our brother and our sister in our hearts, that that's the only way that we are going to be able to resist uh, racism, you know, in our communities and in society, because, you know, this society was built upon racism. Uh, it, it's, it, it, it permeates every institution that we are part of. So it has to be a deliberate um, resistance. And, and, you know, scholars of race have written about this. It, it has to be intentional for, for that kind of work, you know, what's required of us and, and the challenges that we face, that we can only do that successfully with, uh, with Allah and with um, reliance in Allah, with um, help from Allah, with pleading to Allah, asking from Allah. How many of us have really prioritized that struggle? How many of us have really asked from Allah to unite our hearts, right? And, um, and so we, we have to ask from Allah and we have to really embody um, the example or aspire to embody the example of our beloved Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, he came to a community in Medina, a community that there were clans that had been war at war with each other for generations. And so these people who were enemies um, became brothers and sisters, where they were willing to give up everything for their brother and their sister. 
when we look at the Sarah and the, the life of the Prophet you know, there is at the center of it, you know, there's this battle, right? Uh, between the disbelievers, between the Quraysh and, and the Muslims, right? And so before the Muslims fought that struggle, that kind of, that outward struggle, they had to first fight an inner struggle, right? And um, before they fought that struggle against um, the Quraysh, who had, you know, removed them from their homes in Mecca, before they fought that, that epic fight, they, their hearts were first united. Then they became, then they were able to successfully fight the outward enemy. Imam Dawood Walid in episode 23, Spiritually Addressing Anti-Black Racism. Uh, this was a great episode. Imam Dawood weaved in the history of the black heritage of many of the illustrious figures in our early Muslim history from early companions of the Prophet and the family of the Prophet from his book uh, called Centering Black Narrative, Black Muslim Nobles Among the Early Pious Muslims. In the episode, he also discussed in detail how we can eradicate racism and anti-blackness effectively only through a spiritual approach. Uh, a lot of people, when they want to address uh, issues that take place, be it in the broader society or even inside of our community, the the reflex has been is to look at uh, social political remedies, being it uh, marching, protesting, um, trying to use the law and advocacy and, and, and things like that. And those things are good uh, and those things are tools, but they're not really getting at the heart of the matter of the actual uh, spiritual illnesses and spiritual maladies that affect many of the issues that we deal with in society. And uh, racism is uh, one of those things that, in fact, uh, I believe is a spiritual malady that has to be uh, seen as something that is it affects the hearts of the children of Adam. And there needs to be uh, I believe from that perspective, a uh, spiritual remedies or spiritual medicines to help cure the diseased hearts of the children of Adam, because I don't believe that uh, trying to legislate away racism, passing laws, going through courts or within inside of the Muslim community uh, just to call people out for racism is going to actually be transformative and bring about long term good. Um, it has to start from within inside the, the the inward states of the people or the ahwal have to be changed before we can get to uh, some of these other uh, measures that many times people in our community want to run to first. Besides, uh, one of my teachers in, from, uh, from West Africa, I've never uh, heard uh, uh, our shayuk, at least shayuk that I've been in the company of or seen a book on Islamic spirituality and that has been written in English to deal with Muslims in the West to talk about the issue of Tazkiyatun Nafs that mentions racism as one of those things that needs to be uh, dealt with and be purified. So I think that, that you know, sometimes we have uh, a type of Islamic spirituality where we talk about things that are more like esoteric or uh, like big concepts like, like, like a zuhud. The practical examples and like dealing with racism as really not just a, a socio-political issue, firstly, but something that is a spiritual malady that is uh, inspired by the shaitan himself. Um, you know, we really don't hear uh, that being uh, discussed uh, within the the framework of of, of Tesquia Tonefs, and uh, perhaps 
uh, that's something that we can work on and maybe even uh, work on publications or begin to even incorporate that in, in, in our halakat, at least for some of us who are aware that that's, that, that's an issue that needs to be discussed within the issues of the uh, spiritual maladies that affects uh, the hearts of the children of Adam. And with the spiritual approach in mind, which should permeate all our discussions about any issue, the concurrent practical application of anti-racism work, of social justice work, uh, these were the subjects of several episodes that we've had. In episode 11, Tariq Ture joined Imam Daoud, will lead for a conversation about bridging that gap between scholars and activists. And here in episode 33, Ustad Aisha Prime discussed sacred activism and engaging in social justice through an Islamic perspective. We have created two extremes in our community. And it lies in their inability oftentimes to listen to um, to listen or to tolerate even any discussion about what are the ills. I'm talking about the deep ills of society that aren't that aren't easy conversation pieces, that aren't easily solved problems, that aren't, you know, a quick fix. It's it's you know, for and and so there were many times found spouting, ex, you know, spouting examples that don't ring true in the reality of people. So, for example, when when it comes to Black Lives Matter or addressing the deep set racism um, that has come upon that has come upon our people, especially those who who come from colonized lands, that when when we begin to address that, the quick the quick answer is there is no racism in Islam. That's true. But there's a lot of racism right. amongst Muslims. Right. That's right. Right? And so recognizing Islam is the hospital and everybody in the Muslims are the patients. And so, you know, to spout that this is the ideal, this is the utopia, this is the this is what we're searching for as as if that were the reality leaves those who are in pain, who are striving, who are suffering they are left to um, basically, in many cases, their own devices in the sense that there is no, there's nothing reaching out to them to say, let me call you, right, to a method and a methodology that will bring you success, as opposed to being involved with, with isms and schisms and ideologies that not only they don't serve you, but on top of that, they were actually meant to undermine connection to the divine in general and an attack on the Muslims in particular. So in this vein of continuing the conversation of race, here now is a brief but powerful conversation between Mustafa Davis and Maltasa Matia. They are the hosts of the Istanbul edition of the Imanwar podcast, and it's taken from a beautiful video that's available on the El Medina Institute platforms. Watch that video if you can. If not, uh, take a listen here. Share it with anyone who you think may benefit. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala purify our hearts of this disease of racism. May he dismantle cognitive, cultural, ideological, socioeconomic frameworks that oppress any of the children of Adam. And may he make us instruments of good and dignity in the world to be people of mercy, to be people of justice, to be people of ihsan, seeking only his pleasure. We'll be back shortly with another episode. Until then, assalamu alaikum. Peace be unto you. Growing up under that dark cloud of the consciousness of racism, something I just didn't, I didn't experience that. You know, in high school, I, I passed off as just, you know, 
he's Italian, he's a white boy, he's whatever it is. They didn't <laughs> care. They didn't even know what an Arab was, right. you know? I mean, what does that do to you, you know, psychologically? So for me, CD, I can only speak from personal experience. Um, I, I definitely would not contend to speak for all uh, black America, especially since I have a, a mother who's, who's German, blonde hair and, and blue eyes. Um, when I was younger, I was acutely aware of race because I was the only black child in an entire white family. So I have, uh, I have siblings, I have uh, an older sister, a younger brother and a younger sister, but all from different fathers. So we share the same mother, but we have different fathers. And my father was the only one who was black American. So I grew up in kind of, uh, in the 70s, you know, born in the early 70s, grew up in a time and space where uh, it was very clear to me that I was different. You know, I had a big afro. It was much darker uh, as a child then, and there's no way I could have not been seen as a, as a black child. So I, uh, I was acutely aware of race and how people perceive uh, black Americans uh, from a very, very young age, from a very young age. I mean, so you, you, let's, let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, uh, you know, we're, we're only 60 years or so off from you know, the, the civil rights movement. It feels sometimes for some people that it's very far away. But in reality, it's just, it was just around the corner. Just changed names. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not, it's never ended. You know, it just, it became uh, something that had to happen, I think, more behind closed doors uh, than, than out in front as it was before the civil rights movement, where, you know, people were, black Americans were being lynched um, in mid-daylight, you know, if we look at the, at the real history of it, there are postcards that you can find today with white Americans posing with hanging black bodies from, from trees uh, signed by them and their kids as Christmas cards sent out to, to people. You could do the research. It, it's there. So this was something that was taking place, you know, in the, in the 20s, the 30s, in the 40s, you know, before the civil rights movement. The, what we're realizing now, what we're witnessing to, today in, in 2020 is that the sentiment that caused that, the right. ideas that, that caused that haven't gone away. They were maybe just pushed uh, behind closed doors for a bit. It's just going through my mind and heart like, oh my God, how hurtful is it that blood, sweat, and tears, and we know the history of the black community of America, you know, uh, with the slave trade and everything like, and still to this day, yeah. I can't breathe. Yeah. Yeah, that that I can't breathe is a, is a slogan. My fear is it's, it's going to become a it's going to become a hashtag that will that will easily die out with a with a new trend that comes, and this will be kind of a, a forgotten thing. But in reality, I can't breathe is been has been the cry of Black America for over four hundred over four hundred years, suffocated at every step of the way. Um, socioeconomically, politically, economically, you know, growing up in poor neighborhoods, being educated by people who also grew up in those poor neighborhoods, don't have a chance to get out of those poor neighborhoods. And it's just perpetual you know, cycle that, that, that we're caught up in. And then people looking from the outside in, if we're honest, people from our community as well, from the outside in saying, why don't they help themselves? Why don't they just, you know, slavery is over. Like, why don't, you, why don't you get over it? You know, and this isn't, you know, now, now because of, 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 of the movements that are, that are taking place now, there's not much of a need to educate America or even immigrants, immigrants in America about the black plight. Yeah, and, you know, the, the Arab community, which I'm part of, the Daisy community, which I adopted myself into <laughs> that, I, that I love so much. And, you know, we have it there. 
we have these issues there. We have these ailments there. We, we all know it. We, we, we have to admit it. I'm not even really worried about people at this point recognizing their inherent racism. That's something between them and their Lord. That's something that they got to figure out. That's something that communities that have this within the community have to figure out on their own. That's not something that I can, that I can do. My concern right now is really as a, as a start for you at least to see that black America is completely disenfranchised and it's systemic. It's not because they're prone to criminality. Don't talk about black on black crime. You know, look at the reality of how the trajectory of what it means to be black American in the United States from inception has gotten to where it's gotten right now. And no, it does not matter that you have darker skin. You might, you might be from Bangladesh, you might be from India, from Pakistan, from Syria, from Palestine, any place, and you might have dark skin and think that that gives you the right to usurp the black narrative or to say, I've been discriminated against too. And I'll tell you why, and this isn't going to be popular, people, it's based on one thing. Where do you come from? Who's your tribe? Where's your lineage go back to, right? If it doesn't go back to enslaved Africans that came over on slave ships to the United States of America that had their entire history, their religion, their names, their, their, their relationships with their family ripped apart from children. If your history doesn't have that in it, don't say it's the same. It's not the same. I'm sorry. It's not the same. And so that's what I'm saying right now. It's not the time for people who don't have slavery in their history to stand up and dictate what it is people should or shouldn't be doing and to criticize people who have been systemically oppressed for 400 years for standing up and saying no more. I don't know what I could say other than that, Mustafa. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. <laughs> I don't know to say either. I know. And, I, and, I, and we want to be able to be in a place in America where if, if, there's a, if there's a burglary in our home, we're not scared to call the cops because we're going to be the ones that get shot. We want America to be what it is they said it was. And for everyone that's in America and everyone who claims to be our brothers, to be our sisters, to make our situation and the welfare and the, and, and the well-being of black Americans the same way we do with any other cause. I don't know what else to say. So, you know, Mustafa, you know, everyone thinks that, as I mentioned before, you, you read an article, uh, you, you write a ha put a hashtag, and all of a sudden you're no longer a racist. Uh, but that's not the reality. I mean, there, there were Sahabis, companions of the Messenger of God, peace be upon him, who still had racism within them. Uh, Sayyidina Bilal was called, you know, uh, the, the, the son of a black woman. And he took that, that Sahabi to the Prophet, and the Prophet said, did you say that about him? You have, you have arrogance inside you. You have, you have ignorance inside you. And so I think, you know, and unless the community is willing to deal with it as a spiritual disease, because that's what it is. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, we've accepted sort of these, uh, these bumper stickers of what Islam is. Islam is not racist. Islam is fair. Islam is equal. But then I'm a racist. I'm not fair. I'm not giving people equals rights because I haven't gone through a spiritual purification process to get all that stuff out of me. And unless I'm willing to do that and just start to admit, like, yeah, I consciously or subconsciously have elements of racism in me. Oh, God. Help me get this out. And then starting to engage the community that I'm racist towards to be a khadim, be a servant. You know what Imam Ghazali would say? If you have arrogance towards one person, go be their servant. Take out their trash. Put yourself under their feet. 
Go do whatever they need to do. Go put yourself in a position of humility towards that community or that individual that you have these feelings inside you towards so that God showers you with his mercy and gets those feelings outside your heart. Because if you don't do that, you're going to be accountable on the day of judgment. And if God takes you account for your spiritual diseases that you didn't purify, they're going to have to get purified there. And racism is a subcategory of arrogance at the end of the day. And the prophet, peace be upon him, he told us that no one enters paradise if they even have an atom's weight of arrogance in their heart. So racism can actually lead you to hellfire. I think that's the way to look at it too if you want you want continued change, right? right? Because if it just becomes, you know, oh, I'm aware now, I'm, a, I'm, I'm awake or woke, whatever it is, the, whatever the new vernacular is, I'm going to support this cause, but then I'm going to go home to my particular community, whatever community that is, and I still have intrinsic bias against members of my own community, then that movement that you supported didn't, didn't help you. But that's not long-term. That's not going to help you, like you said, when you're, when you're at the gates or when you're ready to receive your book in your right or your left, your left hand. That's not going to help you there. So we have to fight it at the core of it, right? And at the core of it, like you said, it's, it's, it's arrogance. What is it about me that makes me think I'm somehow better than this person based on a trait that I don't control, right? right? Uh, based on a, on, a, on a color of skin, right? Or a class that I was born into or socioeconomic class that I was born into that I don't control. I'm going to be arrogant against this other person. It has to happen at the level of Tezkiah. But that's, that's probably harder than just hashtagging your way through a movement because now I have to do the real work I have, to, I have to fight the cause and, and, and not the symptoms. And sometimes that's, that's a lot harder. It's a lot harder because I have to look inside. Like, and, and I have to admit that I have something that I have to – like what, what is it that causes you to go to the doctor? Sure, we're going to go periodically for, for a checkup. But we go to the doctor, we go to the emergency room, we have an ailment that we can't deal with anymore, that we can't figure out anymore. And so we have to go to the spiritual doctors to fix this, right? And those are the ulama. Those are the scholars. Those are the men and women who have been connected to men and women that go all the way back in an unbroken chain to the Prophet Muhammad of people who have taken on this work of rectifying and purifying themselves. Real work is to get rid of the thoughts and the ideas and the stuff that's embedded in our hearts that make us look down on another people. That's more important than that. I'm not saying protesting is that you shouldn't do it. I'm not saying that you shouldn't hashtag, but there has to be more behind it, especially for us as a Muslim community. Mustafa, you know, I, I know this is a hard conversation. I thank you for it. It's a heavy con- I, I mean, even here, and I'm listening to you, it's heavy for me. Mustafa, thank you for your time. Barakallah,